Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. And this morning we are wrapping up our series in 1 Corinthians with the fifth and final part of this series in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Let me begin with this. How often have you sat at a wedding ceremony, maybe a friend or family member, the bridesmaids walk to their places, the groomsmen are all lined up behind the groom, the cute ring bearers and flower girl have made it to the front, thank goodness, and the teary-eyed parents stand with the rest of the congregation as the organ plays and the bride makes her dramatic entrance in a beautiful dress and walks down the aisle. The officiate says some introductory words, the congregation sings the first hymn, and then it is time for our first reading. And up comes the reader, a friend of the bride, or perhaps a friend of the groom, a little blurry-eyed from the rehearsal dinner the night before, and they begin to read. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, this passage has been used so ubiquitously at wedding after wedding that it's difficult not to think of it as a sort of a mushy sentimentalism that comes part and parcel with, I don't know, a bit of wedding cake and toasts to the bride and groom and, and confetti or, or perhaps sparklers at the end. So this passage needs to be rescued from the quagmire of romantic sentimentality in which popular piety has embedded it. Because in reality, it is a passage which is both incredibly challenging and profound. And, and it looms large over all of us, over all our lives, your life and mine. The depth and power of its influence is difficult to grasp and seldom appreciated, but we must try. So I'll begin with these three quotes, which the agnostic historian Tom Holland uses at the very beginning of his book, Dominion. Holland begins with these three quotes assembled in this precise order, and I think it's an amazing selection of quotes to bring together on one page, and I, I love the order in which he arranges them, and, and I thought this would be one way of us breaking this passage free from the romantic sentimentalism in which it's been taken captive. The first quote is from St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers. He says, love and do as you will. In other words, if you love, truly love, anything you do will be right and it will be good. And so he says, love and do as you will. The second quote is from Nietzsche, who says this, that you feel something to be right may have its cause in your never having thought much about yourself and having blindly accepted what has been labeled right since your childhood. Here, Nietzsche is obviously calling into question all Christian values and virtues, all of these things that we would call virtues, including the greatest Christian virtue that binds all other virtues together, that is love. Nietzsche thinks that we are all steeped in Christian virtue, even though we may not realize it, and therefore never think to question it. 
And then, so as to make Nietzsche's point for him, Holland goes on to quote the song, All You Need Is Love, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It took me a moment to appreciate what Holland had done in assembling these simple quotes here together. So take a moment to digest it, to feel the weight of Christian history, the influence of Jesus that Holland has rather cleverly managed to encapsulate and convey in these three short quotes. Just take a moment and read them through again for yourself. So historically, this passage has had a profound influence. But if we want it to have a truly deep and profound influence in our own lives, in our own personal histories, we must recognize that love also requires the formation of character. Love is not just a matter of feelings. Feelings come and go, but love abides. Paul's description of the attributes of, of love in verses four to seven offer us a picture of habitual actions and dispositions. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others, right? It's these habitual actions and dispositions. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So in other words, one cannot merely decide in, in a moment to start doing these things. They are learned patterns of behavior that must be cultivated over time. Let me illustrate what this might mean. And, and this is a, an illustration that uh, I used maybe, maybe three years ago now. So this is a, an American Airlines flight 1549, which crash landed in the Hudson River. You know, when that plane was hit by the flock of geese, almost at once, both the engines were severely damaged and lost their power. The plane was at that point heading over the, the Bronx, a dense, densely populated part of the Bronx. Captain Sully and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions instantly if they were going to save the lives of people, not only on board, but also on the ground. They could see one or two local airports off in the distance, but they quickly realized they couldn't be sure of making it that far. If they attempted it, they may well crash in, into some sort of built-up area on the way. And the option of putting the plane down on the New Jersey turnpike would present huge problems and dangers for the plane, let alone the drivers on the road. That left one option, the Hudson River. It's difficult to crash land on water, apparently. <laughs> one small mistake, catch the nose or one of the wings off on, the, on the river and the, and the plane will just turn over and over before breaking up and sinking. So in the two or three minutes they had before landing, the captain and his co-pilot had to do the following things. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane would glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves that makes the plane as waterproof as possible once the plane hits the water. Most important of all, they had to fly and glide the plane in a fast left hard turn so that it could come down facing south. 
going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do this using only the battery-operated systems and emergency generator. Then they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. Finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up, and land straight and flat on the water. And as you know, they did it. Everyone got off safely. And then they made a movie. But of course, what he did, all of these spontaneous actions that he had to take, that long list of things he had to do in just a matter of moments, none of this would have come naturally, but it had become second nature to them because of years and years of training and preparing for that moment. So all we need is love. But in a culture that values the spontaneity of feeling, we're tempted to think that love is just something that will come naturally, spontaneously flowing out of all good, decent human beings. We want spontaneous love, but without paying the price. True spontaneous love may not come naturally, may not be our first nature, but it can become our second nature as it grows out of the framework of discipline. Let me give a couple more examples. I can't spontaneously get up and play on the piano. Well, I could, but it would be a really ugly thing and you don't want me to do it. A concert pianist, on the other hand, can get up and, and, and play anything they want to and it would be beautiful because it comes out of this framework of discipline. I can't spontaneously speak another language, but what if I were to work at it? You can think of 101 other analogies, I know. Love, as we have been saying, must be nurtured and cultivated in the context of a community that models and supports that kind of behavior. Don't be disappointed if at first you fail and then fail again. We must learn patience. We must be taught how not to keep score of wrongs against us. As Paul's letter suggests, the church, the church should really be a school for, for the cultivation of these habits and practices with each other. As the church has adopted the habits and strategies of secular democracy, Richard Hayes points out, far too little attention has been given to this character-forming task of the church. We must deliberate carefully about how to reform the church so that we can devote our energies to learning how to love. And the reason why we must work at it, cultivate it, nurture it, is because love, according to the Apostle Paul, is the ground of meaning. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love, according to Paul, is the ground of meaning. As, as verses 1 to 3 that I just read, emphasize even the most noble spiritual activities become literally meaningless 
without love. 1 Corinthians 13 ought to encourage us to step back, even from our most cherished projects, and I've got a few of those, and ask ourselves, why am I doing this? If we cannot honestly say, I'm doing this for love and in love, then the legitimacy of the whole enterprise must come under serious doubt and be called into question. And this test applies, of course, not just to explicitly religious practices, but to everything, business, academics, politics. What is the thing that you're committed to? What enterprise are you working on? Can you say you're doing it out of love and for love and with love? Because all of us know of those sad cases where good causes, great causes, are promoted by people who have lost this frame of reference and turned into loveless zealots. This is what happened in Corinth. The people who were most focused, most single-mindedly focused on spirituality had become guilty of dividing the community and despising their brothers and sisters. We're so susceptible to self-deception in, in these areas that we need others around us who can keep us honest and remind us that love is and always will be what really counts in the end. Amen.